0: thank you all for checking out this week's episode once again i'm john if you like what you heard and saw today subscribe to our youtube channel find us on instagram facebook and twitter and check out our brand new merch store with hats coffee mugs, t-shirts other cool stuff coming down the pipeline Again, thank you all for support. Be safe and see you next week. How's it going, everyone? John here, the host of Spirit Talk. And today we're welcoming the incredible Jeff Clark to the show. Jeff is a 12-year United States Air Force veteran, including stints in operations of Dairy Freedom and Iraqi Freedom. He is also the podcast host of Course of Action. And he is the author of the incredible new book, Hear These Truths, The Ultimate Guide to Building Your Leadership Algorithm uh jeff it is great to have you on here well thank you i appreciate the invite uh i kind of want to get started too before we dive into the book and your life and career one of the reason i came across uh you um and it's super fascinating like one of the really cool things about social media specifically twitter and instagram the writing community out there is so supportive of yeah. other people and obviously other veterans are going to stick to veterans or cops are going to support cops and i get that but when it comes to the actual how i came across your page um obviously our mutual friend uh, eric bishop who's been yep. on the podcast jason piccolo has been on the podcast uh steve stratton uh people like that they were sharing your new book here these truths and i was kind of blown away it's like Sometimes you look at that and you're like, is this real? Is this just an author being an author kind of create some good juju for his book coming out or her book, but it was awesome because everyone's generally excited about this book. And I think it's one of those things where I'm kind of like, I need to have Jeff on because if my friends are reacting this way, um i'd love to be friends with jeff and get to talk to him so again thank you yeah i appreciate
1: away. that man yes uh social media is a beautiful thing when it works
0: <laughs> yeah no it's uh again it's one of those too where it's like you i saw a hashtag where it's like authors of twitter and i'm like i'm sorry looking at. It i go who's this lead what's this book on leadership coming out it's specific specifically during a time the last couple of years where this idea where I've met and come across a lot of people that are leaders. I've seen people grow into the leadership position, uh, whether it's a stay-at-home mom or dad that had to adapt to the pandemic yeah. um, or just other people who just excelled and had to st- uh, stick or just kind of stand out and do something better. And I've also seen leaders that we uh, we put on this pedestal or uh, vote into positions where they lack the leadership and it's again i think this book is coming out at the right time
1: yeah well thank you and i couldn't agree more yeah i think there's always a good time for leadership but there just seems to be you know in in the landscape of our country the last maybe even decade or more um it's been troubling you know and it's kind of been you know, what's the flavor of the day going to be? You know, what are, what are we going to be in for in the next four years? And it's just, it's, it's troublesome. So I think, you know, going back to what you said about the author community, and we support each other. You know, I've read Eric's early stuff. I've read Steve's early stuff. You know, um, I give endorsements when I truly believe in something. I don't try to sugarcoat. Um, and they were really, really awesome to support me and they didn't have to. And especially with them being in fiction, and I'm in nonfiction right now um doing that was just you know they're good they're good dudes
0: it's when when the pandemic hit from your leadership background obviously the time of the air force and you i would say you are a leader uh did you find your definition of leadership changed through the course of the pandemic when the world shut down and obviously with uh four kids and a wife and how did that role as a leader in your mind kind of change in terms of your family and friends or other coworkers? look it up to you more to be like, Hey, Jeff, like what's going on? Like uh, we need some sort of guiding light here.
1: Uh, well, from a family perspective, you know, I was home more cause I was, t- I was working from home um, because of the pandemic. I wasn't in the office most of the time. So I be- kind of became, you know, a hybrid stay home, dad, professional, and then school teacher. Cause my kids got sent home at one point in time too. So, you know, I was going from office to living room to kitchen and in MacBook and then, you know, Chromebook and I was hopping around and, um, and, and still trying to write. So I kind of became, I had to adapt, you know, and that's the big thing about leadership is, is adapting. And, um, I think from a professional standpoint, it was more so looking people in the face saying, we're going to get through this. We're going to work this out. Um, This will pass. We're going to be flexible and nothing's going to change. We're just going to be have to adapt in the way we do things. And with the government, when government work, you know, telework and remote work was used to be a naughty word. You know, people did not, you didn't say that it sounded, it just wasn't acceptable, but when they embraced it and they realized we're getting the same results, sometimes even better out of people. And I haven't seen them in three weeks, you know, face to face. It was kind of a magical light that clicked on. They said, Hmm, maybe, maybe this is a good thing. And they embraced it and it worked.
0: It's well, those too, where for me, I love the idea of, whether I'm in the leadership position or I'm in a group where there's other leaders, or I'm just listening, I'm being a good subordinate in terms of making sure the mission, whatever our task is to get completed together. And the idea of not being for those first six, seven, eight months or so, not being in a room with those people where you had to start using zoom or you had to start, like you said, this talent marketing where it's like conference calls and FaceTime. It's like, I kind of lost which is kind of the reason why I started my podcast is because I I, I felt like I didn't want to lose that I connection between people. Um, and it was interesting to see people kind of become leaders in a world where for that first year of the pandemic, there was nothing happening. It was just people sitting online, whether it's bitching about this or that, mm-hmm. or just feeling sorry for themselves. Or maybe they had great reasons to be bad, whether it's the healthcare or there's no no one's giving answers it was super fascinating how the leadership kind of that that you talk about the leadership algorithm obviously in the book but the definition of the actual what a leader meant kind of evolved in real time it was really interesting to kind of see that
1: yeah you know and I think that first year was tough because we were told by all the experts all the people in Washington like 14 days 14 days next two months you know and it just and it just kept inching down the road, we were just kicking that can down the road. And I think that was hard for a lot of people to understand, because it was like, this is supposed to be over. You know, why am I, I'm not going to try to get used to this, because it's not supposed to take this long. And that's tough for people to understand. And for people, you know, leaders to deal with, because they're saying they're echoing the things that they're being told, hey, two weeks, hey, two months, we're going to be good, you know, and then it turns into a permanent thing you know, and now they're talking about a second pandemic and, and we're talking about masks at work again, because things are starting to break out. There's a guy in my office the other day I had COVID and I was like, come on, bro. Like, geez, like <laughs> I'm trying to stay away from this mask thing again, but I think it's just, it, it's adapting. And, and, and instead of complaining about the punches, you know, not you don't have to like them but they're going to happen and if you know they're going to happen you you can kind of back away from it and absorb the blow a little bit and you understand it better
0: you kind of you just mentioned the idea that leaders when they have to echo chamber some of the stuff they get the flack from their supporters and the people below them because like man you're supposed to lead us it's like it's super interesting i guess to see leaders or people you perceive as leaders to break under that pressure or leaders that take that and be like, you know what? And you, I love how you talk you gave a whole chapter about this, but you can fail be a leader and it's okay. And this idea that uh, admitting to the failures and just like, everyone has this this, this conception. At least I always did where it's like, it's always perceived as if you're a general or you're a CEO, like you have to be perfect. You have to do all this, 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 it's exactly the opposite. I don't want that role, but I want someone who's willing to learn and adapt with me and lead from the front. And like this idea of not doing that, or you just kind of, you just buckle because you can't deal with what's doing. It's like, can you kind of touch more upon that? Because the idea of failure in leadership, I think is so misconstrued.
1: Well, we fail more often than we realize. Um, We're wrong more often than we realize. The difference is between hiding it and embracing it and owning it. Um, A lot of, a lot of things have happened and since you know the 9-11 the war on terror kicked off there's been a lot of things that the pentagon didn't do correctly administrations didn't own up to things like that um but they they, they didn't own up to them that was the problem failure is going to happen in a 20-year war against an enemy that we didn't know much about and that were were playing on their turf and they didn't have home bases you know they were running out of caves and shelters and whatever they could get their hands on whereas we had we were very structured there's going to be failure so and in general you know in business and in the world you know as a leader the the best way to do things is to own failure and to say i i messed up because when your people see you do that they'll they'll understand there's consequences to failure however i'm not Necessarily afraid of doing it, so when I go into something, I'm not I'm concerned with success. I'm not as concerned with failure. I know it's there, but I'm not afraid of it to the point where I'm always looking over here in this direction instead of looking forward. And that's a just a for me in my career, I embraced failure. When I screwed up, I owned it. When I failed, I owned it. And I said, guys, it's gonna happen. I I dropped the ball on this, or I I messed this one up, or I it didn't get the result I wanted. I owned it. And I said, now, I think there's some things we can do better. Anybody got any input? And then then the team owns it too. And it's just a different dynamic when you do that. Some leaders walk around and say, I can't be wrong. I'm the boss. You know, somebody else is at fault for this. It's not me, you know, and that's a bad, bad dynamic and bad culture to have.
0: It's that interesting idea where you don't think lead, leaders should always be learning. Right. Or like there's stuff's always changing. The world's always changing. Your environment's always changing. And it's like those guys that have that ego or girls that have this ego of I'm the CEO, I'm right. It doesn't seem conducive to harboring a proper work environment where the ultimate mission should be, whether the company goal, whatever your personal goals are, put yourself in a position to succeed there. And again, if you have a question or stuff changing or you're in the financial market and numbers and all algorithms are changing, all this stuff, it's like get a book and read about it. If you want to become a leader, pick up, hear these truths, and learn about the algorithm of leadership. And it's like these people that get in their head where it's – obviously, this is a lot of ego. I'm the boss. I know what's best. No one's going to change my mind. I'm perfect. And I think that is the complete – that is the wrong way to look at leadership.
1: Yeah, I mean, because you're not the smartest person in the room. Just because you're the boss or the manager doesn't mean you know everything. Most of the time, you don't. You don't know everything. You know, a lot of CEOs and all that, they don't have a background in marketing or a background in engineering, or they don't have a background on all those things that make a company tick. You know, but they have to have somebody who does. That's why they hire managers and say, hey, you're my HR expert because I don't know it. I'm empowering you. To know everything hr and to you know communicate my mission and my vision for the company through human resources you know and that you have to do that because you don't know everything
0: from a leadership standpoint when you were in the military for the 12 years and then when you went back into the air force as a civilian did you notice what was the biggest uh change in leadership Uh, perceived or directed towards you since you now are civilian versus when you're in the military?
1: Uh, Well, people looked at me as a retiree. So they kind of looked at me like, okay, you know, this guy's been around even though it was only like eight months um, difference. And then when I got put into a civilian leadership position, you know, it was Mr. Clark. It was sir. And it was like, hey, you don't have to do that. But in a way I saw the way they looked at me. They looked at me as a source of, you know, hope, uh, You know, energy, uh, wisdom, you know, leading that, you know, you see those eyes where it says, okay, tell us where to go, tell us what to do, how to move. Uh, so we can do that. Cause you, you have a lot of passionate people who love their job. They just need the right tools to do it. And if you hire well and you get great people in, you need to give them what they need and empower them to go there and say, I'm just, I'm just herding cats you guys are the ones who run running the show you know what do you need from me you know just because my name's on the front door or whatever doesn't mean nothing I, i'm nothing without you
0: one of the for me like i love the leaders like the david gogans or the jockos and i love the very verbal uh sometimes I maybe mean, even the this the aggressiveness towards it But I also respect, I love the leaders, like the silent leaders, like uh, my mom as like, she is not a very vocal person, but how she helps take care of my dad and carries on with her life. We carries a lot of these heavy crosses where that type of leadership too. You don't have to say a single thing. I can look into that person, my mom's eyes and be like, this is a leader. This is someone I want to follow. And I also have the same reaction from a David Goggins who's saying, Hey, you better run through your pain and all this stuff. And if you want it, you get it. For someone that's looking for leadership in their life, what's the best approach for those, type, those people? That Do they just kind of gravitate towards that leader they're looking for? Or is there a specific type of traits and people they should be looking towards? Um, you know,
1: it's a great question.
0: I, I would say
1: my advice would be, Um, Be open to anything because you just don't know who's going to affect you. Um, you Now I'm a military guy. I love Jocko. I love all those guys. Yeah. Um, Huge source of inspiration. I I mean, uh, I love them. I follow them, but you know, there's other guys out there, you know, start, start with by, by Simon Sinek, you know, Um, not a day in the military in his life you know, soft-spoken, kind of a little nerdy. And he's from, I think he's from overseas, you know? Um, So, you know, I love him. His books, um, Leaders Eat Last and Start With Why are huge, huge to me, you know, just as big as Jocko and all them. So I would say, don't look at what you want to look at and try to find that, but do not be opposed to something Different, something that maybe you wouldn't normally go to, and and allow it to do what it's supposed to do. And if it doesn't, fine, move on. Um, but take what you want or take what you need from a little bit of everybody, and enjoy it. Because I've enjoyed tons of books that weren't written by military member, you know, right. or, or a veteran.
0: It's always super fascinating too, because I, obviously I gravitate towards those types. I spent time in the federal government, and so I, I guess my mind gravitates towards those type of people. But the people that aren't in that world, it, it is fascinating because there's you see leadership every day, whether it's the person at the grocery store, uh, the guy at the gas station, the the person you work with on the crew when you're touring the world doing whatever. It's like those silent leaders, it's like they say words that are just as profound as someone that uh, was in a fo- foxhole. And I think leadership doesn't have to be pigeonholed into this concept of you don't need to be a a combat expert. You don't have to be a terrorism negotiator to be a good leader now i'm not saying you can't be you are great leaders if you do that but 100%. even if even with that training that doesn't make you a great leader either very true
1: you know there's um there's bad apples in the military oh yeah there's there's people in the military who are coming to work every day to do the minimum you know it's just it's no different than being you know a civilian um we have our struggles too but um you know, some of the best uh, leadership lessons I've learned were from my troops, the ones who were brand new to the military or, or had only been a couple of years that I was leading. Some of them taught me the best leadership lessons. And we have these four star generals and these Fulberg colonels and these high paid civilians that are running the military and the government. And I've learned more from people that I had an intimate relationship with at the in the work center, you know, in a professional relationship than I did, you know, somebody with a bunch of brass on their shoulders.
0: The, the, the idea of leading from the front and I, for the longest time before reading your book, I was like, Oh, you know what? Be a leader, lead from the front, always be the front. It's like, at what point though, do the people you're leading become so dependent on you as the leader that you say if God forbid something happens to you as a leader or you get taken out or something changes, you get sick, whatever, who's stepping up to the plate. If they're so dependent on you as leading from the front, is that type of mindset conducive to building new leaders?
1: Uh, I think it can be tough. Um, I think you have to kind of weigh, weigh your options and look at your environment and you really have to kind of think about it. And um, actually in the book, you know, I have a 30, 60, 90 rule and it's really important. Those first 30, 60, 90 days, you're looking at things in a certain way and seeing how and feeling things out. I think when you're trying to build a new leader, you got to tell them there's going to be times where you have to lead from the front and people are going to look to follow you, but then you have to turn around and empower them to keep going themselves. Because as a leader, your job is not to hold hands and babysit. Your job is to teach, to train, equip, lead, and empower, and then say, okay, you got this because you're the expert. That's why I have you here. That's why I hired you. Because I don't know everything about HR or marketing or or touring or whatever it may be, but I, I know you do, which is why I have you on my team. And that's why you're a part of this team and you're important. So I know what needs to get done. You tell me how to do it. You tell me what you need and I'm empowering you. I'm still obviously the boss and the manager. I'm leading. We've got frames, deadlines and all that, but it's a collaborative effort and it has to be like that. I think people who lead from the front, it's a great phrase to say, but it can be almost toxic if it's taken too far because then people all people will do was follow and they won't build their own brand of leadership and be an extension of you,
0: right? I've I've had a lot of these guests on the show, uh, specifically w- when it comes to like the self defense or like the tactical stuff, and all great people. And i always ask them, but I'm always so fascinated because I never go, I'm never that person that signs up to go to a leadership course or go to a weekend course where I learn defensive tactics. Like I don't, I'm, it's just not for me, right? Uh, but in a room full of those people who are teaching that, they're all leaders. They're all excellent at what they do. In the event there is a situation, I always ask them if you, 10 of you guys and girls sitting around a room, you're all experts, you're all leaders, who becomes a leader? Like, who's the leader in that situation? Or do you guys all have that mind, that high mindset where it's like, I'm leader, I'm leader, I'm leader, and like, nothing gets accomplished? Like, how do you break down this idea of a room full of leaders? How do you kind of knock back the ego in there to where how, help make sure the right person, uh, steps up and kind of like you just said where it's like your team is built on the guy that's good with analyzing numbers the guy that's good with shooting the guy that's good with writing the guy that's good with uh interrogating all these type of things how quickly do leaders able to adapt the situation find their role inst- before instead of kind of stepping over the other leader next to them
1: well i think a good leader knows when to kind of shut up and color you know they know when to <laughs> step aside I've been in situations in the military where, you know, room full of leaders, you know, alphas, you know, and, hey, we need to go, we need to go do this right now. And the first person to speak up, everybody followed, you know, you have trust in your fellow, you know, military men and women and, and your team and your partners and uh, you move and then you add when you need to, or you, you, you look at the dynamics and say, okay, hey, we're, we're slacking here a little bit this I'm going to pick up the pace on behalf of the team, you know, um, and, and you don't try to be individuals. You try to be a team. And if one person's leading you forward and it's working, you go with it. Um, and again, if something's slacking, then you, you to in there and you pick it up and say, Hey, I got this. Let's go team. We're so rolling. Um, I think that's a huge thing. It's something I learned, you know, talking to some Navy SEALs and reading a lot of Navy SEAL yeah. books and special operators is, you know, they're individualized, special, you know, specialized You know, very capable individuals, but they're put into four and five and six member teams. One person's designated as a leader, but they all have a responsibility. So at times it's time for comms. One guy's got it. They all turn and look to him. You know, they know, you know, your role, I think it's really, really important to know your role and to never let your ego tell you, Hey, whoa, come on, man, get up to the front. You know, your ego should be saying, okay, we're playing our role right now for optimal success.
0: It's like one of those things that someone like you gets brought into whether do like a TED Talk type thing or go into a company and how important is it for you to see how a CEO has de- clearly defined, uh, not, I'm not going to say labels in a bad way, but made a role, made a each person has a specific role to make that company succeed. Like you must walk in there sometimes or just hear these stuff or whatever and be like, well, this person doesn't know what he's doing, so he doesn't feel like he's part of the team. This person's has too much workload, like how vital is it for you to realize from the CEO standpoint to clearly define a role for someone to make this whole team work?
1: I think roles and titles are important, but you have to have a transparency about them that they don't matter. Because ah, got you. if you're a boss, I mean, you, I'm the boss, I'm the manager, it's on the door, you know, I sit in a corner office. That's what you're known as. That's all you'll ever be. You'll be a consequence, not a, you know, a coordinator, not an, an someone who empowers them. So roles and titles are important, but they have to be able to be blurred to where you're a subject matter expert. You know, I rely on you, you know, and I think it's real important. I, something I like to do when I, I've gone into some businesses and done some consulting and some talks. And the biggest thing I like to see is how much does the boss talk? Does the boss. Hey, Jeff, welcome. Come in. Let's let me introduce you to the team. And then he walks around the room, introduces every, every employee or whatever, real proud of them. And then shuts up. Hey, these guys are the show. This is the show. And these guys are it, you know, or does he sit there and blah, 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 blah about every single thing, (laughs) you know, or does he step back and say, this is the team, you know, these are my guys, you know, and that's, there's a big difference between how they handle it and um, they talk to hear themselves talk or they talk to make the point clear and then say, these guys can speak for themselves right. they're awesome people they're powered people they're accomplished people <laughs> and they got this, and I'm confident that they do
0: the other day I was talking to a friend who's much younger than me uh, and he said something or like I've, he's going through a situation where he's kind of like a caretaker type person. And I go, man, I, I jokely go, man, I was following the battle. Like, I just love the way you're handling this. He goes, well, John, you're more experienced. Like, you know, I go, it's not about, like you kind of talked about this. Like you don't have to be this go hard charger, go getter, run through all the trenches. And you also don't have to be a 45 year old grizzled vet who's seen everything to be a leader. And when I, when I, as we kept talking, I go, man, you don't, and I said that, I go, you don't, the leadership qualities you carry, I resonate more with you now than I would with anyone that's been in the foxhole, because I'm seeing it in real time, my, in my time. It's like, just because you're younger doesn't mean you can't be a good leader. And I think that, that the age gap there specifically, does that scare an older person? Uh, and I use older lightly, I don't want to offend anyone, but sure. an older person, that sees this younger person as not a, not really a threat, maybe, but they see that the other people in the company or organization gravitate towards this person because they're a genuine leader. Does that age despair? Does that ever scare off the older people who are kind of maybe the top part of that organization?
1: Um, I think it depends on how they embrace it. It really does. Um, youthful energy and youthful leadership is a good thing, if one you know, you know, to embrace it too, you know how to kind of control it. Um, the thing, the problem with anything new is that it can be overly energetic and could go a million different ways. And it's sometimes uh, be, can be counterproductive. So, you know, new things are good. Change is hard, but new things are good if you know how to control them. So when you introduce them, it can be effective the last thing you want to do is introduce something new and it just go off the rails and then people are looking at you going what are you doing you know what a, what the heck are you doing like <laughs> new policies new things and we weren't ready for it you didn't introduce it to us and there's no organization there's no rules of engagement there's no structure like where's that at people will will, will stiff arm that they'll give it the heisman and go i don't like it
0: it's one of the other things you talk about in your book, too, a lot is the idea of motivation. Uh, and again, to go back to kind of what we talked about, I love the guys that are girls that are screaming. They're just go like, just make just want to make me run through a wall. And I love that feeling. But I can also accomplish my mission listening to a Bob Dylan song and still accomplish what I'm doing, whether it's cutting the grass or taking a person from a red carpet to their car to the house, like whatever that is. Can motivation, for some people, it scares people because they don't, they're not, they can't really understand or that doesn't affect them. Can too much motivation take away from a leader in terms of, like, you have to be able to gauge a room and each person might be affected differently by how you, lead, you present yourself. And I think sometimes these people that are looking for motivation or even these motivators out there, you look at their social media, some of the negative comments are this wouldn't work for me. Like this doesn't work. Like you don't have to be screaming like this. You don't have to call me a slob. You don't have to say I'm a worthless piece of junk. And it's like, how do you as a leader find that balance for motivation? Because obviously it affects people differently. So you really got to know your environment
1: and you got to know your people. That's maybe the most important responsibility as you know somebody in charge and when you're trying to lead people so you got to know them because just as uh, to your point everybody in the room is going to be a little different so you have to know how to motivate them all the same with different tactics and you got to really learn what works for them and i think a really good example is uh mac brown who's a coach for you know uh, texas longhorns for a long time yes uh they were going through a really rough season and yeah, I think it was like one of his last seasons before he, they fired him or let him go. And it seemed like every other play, you know, Texas would screw up, something would go wrong, and they'd all go walk into the sidelines, and he'd be clapping, clapping. You could hear You could see it on his face. He's saying, it's all right, guys. Good job. You know, it's all right. It's all right. All the time. Every time the camera focused on him, that's what he was doing. And his players weren't responding to it. They weren't turning around and doing better. I mean, they his players knew. We, we are sucking right now. You can't do anything right. You know, sometimes you need that fire lit under you. You don't need uh, somebody coming and putting their arm around you saying, it's going to be all right. Well, right. We'll, we'll get them next time. Sometimes yeah. you don't need that. Sometimes you need somebody up in your face saying, you do it again you're going to be benched. You're going to run sprints until you throw up. You know, sometimes you need that and sometimes you don't. Some people use it for fuel and some people don't. I think you got to know, who you're working with and it's hard on really really big organizations but um you know i i've i've worked in big organizations and i knew who to really get into and i knew who to say hey you're better than this you know and it's just it's tough being a leader is the hardest thing to do in the world uh, it really is because you just
0: you don't know if you're right or wrong half the time I love that you brought up the coaching idea, because every time there's like a, a bad season in any sport, uh, when they fire the coach, after like the, the 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 interviews and stuff come out from players or whatever, the people that aren't the owners are always like, he's a leader, he's a great coach, I'd die for this coach, I'd die for her, whatever, whatever, whenever. and obviously it comes down to you didn't win enough games. And I kind of... I look at it two ways. I understand the need to win. Everyone should win. And this doesn't mean whether it's a game, but it should be the best version of yourself every day. Compete to change the what you had the day before. Whatever. It doesn't have to be a sport. And the idea of owners spend all this money to put together a team led by a coach or a GM or whoever to get wins and get to the playoffs and make more money. When, those, when they don't get to the point where they can make the playoffs or even win a couple of games or they get fired, and you see the player's reaction to stuff. It makes you wonder if the idea of a coach is, I would consider obviously a leader. If you looked up the definition of leadership, a coach would be follow under that. When they get let go because they didn't get enough wins, do you think the perception of some people in the public or athletes, especially in college or high school, is that – only a winning coach is a good leader like how do you know is that d- differ obviously between high school and professional where the, obviously like we said the money uh comes down to a lot of these factors uh
1: yeah i think the public does per, you know perceive it like that you know they they look at it like he couldn't get enough wins he wasn't good for the program he wasn't doing something right he had to go not all the public is like that um some pretty hardcore fan bases out there. I know, especially here in Oklahoma, University <laughs> yeah, of Oklahoma yeah. is a hardcore fan base. Um and uh, some of them are like that. Some of them, you know, form their own opinion, you know. Um uh, going back to Mac Brown, I think he's an awesome coach. Yeah. Um I think he struggled with that recruiting class and that class of players to really connect to them and that's why they had a a, a poor season and and for the college football example, let's use it, you know, there's been coaches who have gotten in great candidates, great recruits, huge recruiting classes. And they went seven and six, six yep. and six made some mediocre bowl game. And it was like, well, you had a top 10 recruiting class. What happened? It's not necessarily the coach. He's got a, him and his staff have to adapt and connect with the players that they have to repeat success. So when you see guys like Let's use Nick Saban for an example. Continued sustained success. Yes. Is it because he's hauling in a top two (laughs) recruiting class every single year? Yeah, that's a huge part of it. Those players are only so much without the right coaching and leadership to take it to the next level. Um, That's not taking anything away from the players and it's not giving too much credit to the coaches. They've mesh. Right. You know, and you have to do that because you can bring in all the talent that you want. You can throw all the salary at them that you want. If they can't take what they have and turn it into success, it's still, you know, it's still kind of a failure. And at what point in time are you okay with that? Or do you say, okay, we we have to try something different.
0: Right. When it comes to your podcast, uh, course of action obviously it's very leadership centric when you have other leaders on there people how often do you find yourself looking at something and be like man i never thought of leadership in that way or how that person leads or is this something for you where it's like you go into one of your episodes and you come back thinking man maybe i'm maybe i wasn't a good leader or maybe i was a better leader this i thought it was like how often does that happen for you
1: man, probably every episode, you know, I really try to bring people on that, um, you know, I'm I'm learning about them, you know, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm looking to be taught something, you know, to find out something about their world and to better myself through them. And uh, probably almost every episode, I walk away and go, Hmm, that was interesting. You know, different perspective kind of changed my thought on that, or, you know, so I think doing a podcast is one of the funnest things in the world it's gonna be forever to get started because i'm so afraid of doing it but (laughs) it's been one of the most rewarding things. Uh, i work on it all the time it feels like um but the purpose of doing it was to connect with people and to talk like me and you were talking right now and and to learn and and open up a door to people to, I maybe never would have talked to. I might not have ever have met you sit here in my house, you know, but you know, have an online presence and doing a podcast. The next thing I know, I'm talking to you. And I think that's a, that's a very powerful thing.
0: Yeah. It's the kind of way I started too. like, I, I know I mentioned it, like just the, the fear of losing that connection with people and this whole thing, like you, it's like, I never would have, I never would have seen this book or read it. Um, and I've had guests on the show, uh, that, I mean, I, I hate putting and stuff, national bestseller, all that stuff where it's like, I never would have found those books either. And I love right. going through a bookstore, but I, I became so hyper-focused on learning. Like you said, the idea of every episode, learn something new. Uh, now obviously I could kind of, we could you and I could cherry pick who comes on, but you are picking that person or that topic that you want to learn more about, whether it's wildlife conservation, whether it's leadership, whether it's whatever it is. And it's been so fun just learning, like, learning to appreciate my actual love of reading. And mm-hmm. it's one of those things too, where it's like, again, before the pandemic, I was so busy. Well, you're never too busy to read. But I always in my head, I'm always like, I, I'm too busy. To I'm going to work. I do yard work. I got to do my security stuff. I'm too busy to read. But I, I do all that stuff now. And I still read more than I ever have. And I think, again, it's that's what the podcast has done where it's like I'm able to learn more. Like there's there's so many Jeff Clarks out there mm-hmm. that are that have just as a unique voice as yours or mine. It's like, how do I get out there and learn from them as well?
1: Yeah, I when I started a podcast, I really said I'm going to bring people on that I'm I want to know more about. I'm not gonna look for titles or status or anything like that. And I know that's that's kind of important to viewership and kind of getting a return on your investment, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, I do want to know about people. I want to give people who maybe don't have a voice a chance to have a voice because they have interesting things to say. You know, they have an awesome book that the world needs to hear about. And if I can be an advocate for that and give them their 15 minutes of, of, of help or, or shine, you know, I want to do that. And you learn so much about people and I've learned a ton um, from the publishing industry to, you know, leaders in different areas. And it's just been, uh, it's been really, really awesome. I, I don't regret it for a minute. I want to
0: do uh, the publishing for your book, tactical 16 publishing they're their motto and their way they do business of, if you have a unique voice, uh, we want to help put that out there. It's like, how did you kind of settle on them? Because it seems like they are they let you be your own unique voice and they support people who have a story to share. That obviously when it comes to leadership, you if you're a publisher and you turn that down initially, you're a fool because we, we need more books on leadership. That's the problem
1: yeah so tactical 16 i settled on them because i went in and i don't want to say settle. i think it's a yeah i i i, I turned to them and, and i agreed to work with them because i went to a lot of traditional publishers um, and literary agents and i got a lot of good feedback hey the book's great the book's great uh is hard to sell how many twitter followers do you have Yeah, you know, what's your social media look like what does what does your website throughput look like? Cause that, you know, they want to know that there's going to be eyes on the book and, and they have a better chance of selling it. You know, cause they want to make money too. I'm not of mad course. at them for that. Um, but I finally just said to myself, I'm, I'm, I'm going to find someone who appreciates the book for what it is and appreciates me. And I just started looking everywhere. I gave you know, literary agents, my stuff, publishers, my stuff. I started looking around to everybody, and I just said, "Hey," um, and I was in. I lived in Colorado Springs at the time, where Tactical Sixteen is headquartered. And um, I sent them an email. Chris reached out to me and said, "Hey, um, let's chat sometime." Like, we're, "What time zone are you in?" I was like, well, "I'm in Colorado." He's like, "Where at?" He's like, "Colorado Springs." He's like, "What?" I'm I'm just up the road. He's like, let's get together and chat. So we went to a brewery and sat there and had had a couple of beers. And he said, tell me about your book, man. And I I wasn't ready for that. I was thinking, oh, we're going to go. He's going to probably just get to know me a little bit. No, he was like, I already know about you because I looked at your website, looked at your social media. You're a veteran. I'm a veteran. This is a veteran brand business for law enforcement and veterans, first responders. And he said, I I already know you. I know about your book. He put me on the spot. And I said, well, (laughs) Half written, blah blah blah. This is what I want to do with it, and he's like, Cool, keep going and call me when you're done. And then I was like, Okay, um, I didn't call him, um, admittedly. And he hit me up in like December of I think it was like 20, 21, something like that. Yeah, and he said, Uh, are you going to submit your manuscript to us? And I was like, I don't know, it's I don't know if it's done yet. It's over the holidays. He's like, well, you got till Friday. I want to see it. Make sure you send me what you have. I was like, okay. So I spent like two days working on this submission and all that. And I sent it to him and he calls me back and he say, Hey man, just want you to know uh, we're looking at books right now. We're going to be sending a contract your way. I don't want you to sit on pins and needles or anything. He's like you got the best uh, submission we've seen in years. So uh, we're looking forward to going forward with it. And I was just kind of like, you know, They believed in it. He believed in it. He liked the voice. And uh, even though it was half written, I need to do a lot more work on it. And um, he gave me the contract before I even came up with the algorithm idea. Wow. But the contract is what really made me go, okay, somebody believes in this. I've really got to deliver. And that's when the creative things just started flowing. And that's when I really hammered it out because I had written about 55,000 words and canned about 20 of it. And wanted to go up to sixty five thousand words, so I was just like, I was in full blown like butcher mode. I was just cutting, and he uh, he was like, "No, nah, I love it. You know, keep working and let me know when it's done." He's like, "But we're going full forward with it." And I was like, "Sweet."
0: It's great to see that. It's obviously with a veteran owned company, like they they totally get that. I just love see, hearing stories like that because it's so in a world where I have these ideas in my head for books and stuff, and it's like again to have the, the backboard and support system of someone like tactical 16 to help tell your story or it's for you, the, what, was there a lot of trepidation when it came to writing or when the book is finally out and you, obviously you get a ton of awesome, like accolades, like this is an amazing book, but in the back of your mind, I assume you're someone like me where I'm like, well, what are the negative people saying? Why do I always fixate on what that one negative person saying that, oh, you think you're an expert. What makes Jeff an expert in leadership? Why does he have a, does he have an ego to put a book out? think he's a leader. It's like, how do you kind of micromanage those thoughts in your head as you kind of push forward and stuff?
1: Well, there's always going to be people who don't like you or don't agree with you. You know, when I, I, when I finally started a podcast, I was like, there's going to be people who don't like this, people who don't listen, you know, same thing with the book. There's going to be people who disagree. That's fine. You can disagree. Um, You know, the difference between people who respectfully disagree and people who angry disagree, you know, are the ones who write the comments on Amazon, you know, um, or they're mad because Amazon bent the cover, you know, I got my delivery and it bent the cover, you one star, but that's not my fault. So in my head, I just kind of go, I'm not worried about the people that don't like it. I'm worried about the people who do. I'm worried about the lives that I can affect and the people that I can inspire if I didn't inspire you, I'm sorry. I wish I could have, but I'm not here to please everybody. Um, Maybe I'm not for you. Maybe, you know, David Goggins is, uh, you know, maybe somebody else is go find who is, Um, you know, and I'm sorry I couldn't, but I'm concerned with the people who want to value my time because I valued theirs.
0: Right. Yeah. It's just, it's awesome. It's like, it's so cool to see you come through and do all that. And for as you kind of say so the books have been out there for long enough and stuff, do you have aspirations or aspirations to do another book? Like, are you always writing still? Like how in 10 years from now, a lot of this stuff could change. Would you be inclined to go back out there and kind of tweak the algorithm? Like, is this algorithm for you in your head, something that can always change?
1: Um, I think the algorithm as in, you know, the efforts, you know, process and progress is pretty solid. I mean I think that's a very good foundation. And I use the word foundation because it, foundations can be built upon. Yes. You know, so um I do want to write more. I've been working on some fiction stuff. Um Nice. Um you know, Eric Bishop's a good friend oh. of mine and solid dude and um he's given me a lot of tips. We've talked a lot offline of, you know, outside of the podcast and um, email and stuff, so Um, I'm really, really excited about doing that. Um, I, this is not going to be my last nonfiction book. I can promise you that, um, whether I get a full boom, big publisher, small publisher behind it, or I self-publish, um, I've learned enough about the industry from talking to other people that. I think I feel confident that if I put out another book, even if I had to self-publish it, I'm going to put it out to the right people because it's a self-publishing is a very unique platform for your voice to shine. If you do all the work that like a major major publisher would do and all that, but you can control that with social media, you can control that with your voice. Um, So yeah, man, I I love to write. I try to write every day. I try to read and write every day. That's my thing, Um, even if it's just for 15 minutes and, and try to work on some project. Sometimes I have too many projects going on, but right. you know, I, I try to work on whatever's inspiring me at the time, whatever I'm feeling.
0: Before I let you go, tell like obviously your podcast is everywhere. Uh, if people want to pick up your book, what's the best way to do that? If they want to head to your website, is that is that the best way to kind of t- keep in touch with you? Like, tell us a little bit about your uh, social media and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, so you can go to jeffclarkofficial.com. From there, you can get all the socials. Um, If you want a signed copy of the book, go to the website. Um, You can subscribe or you can hit the contact button and contact me. Um, I'll set you up a way to get a signed book directly from me. Or, you know, you can help at Amazon, Barnes & Noble. I think you can even go to the Tackle 16 website and get a copy. So it's available pretty much everywhere. But yeah, if you want to sign copy, you know, go to the website and hit me up. Um,
0: I got all the socials on there as well. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. I love the uh, challenge coin that came with it as well. I uh, I'll have to give you a send out uh, mine to you as well. But uh, the little things like that, like the little, I think it's it's so imperative to, especially this day and age, to be creative in terms of like the marketing, and who doesn't love a challenge coin? And it it was just really cool where it ties in your obviously from your leadership to your military background. And it's a really cool thing. And the fact you leave personal messages in there, the bookmarks, yeah. and the little notes, like the letter, it's, uh, I can't recommend this book enough to people out there. It's a great gift. Thank um, you. Yeah, I know Father's Day just passed, but I, I am actually going to send a couple of books out to some fathers I know. Um, and yeah, no, know it's just a great thing to have you on here and uh, we'll have to do it again, but I appreciate your time today, Jeff. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Thank you for having me on. I'm a big fan of Spirit Talk and uh, man, I can't tell you how much I appreciate this.
0: Thank you.